Hey, welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. All right, welcome to Hell Has an Exit. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. On this show, we interview people who have uh, overcome addiction, um, any type of adversity. And today I have my friend Austin here. I've known Austin basically since 2008. I was trying to think uh, before we started, did I get clean before you or after you originally? Originally, you were after me. Okay, so I had already been here. But now you're before me. Now before you, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. What was I like when you first met me? You always had your little socks up to your knees. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. I think you had glasses. Did I make that up? I think I had glasses later on. Maybe I had glasses. You had glasses. And we originally bonded over our love of crack. Yes, of course. How could you not love crack? It's the best. Yeah, yeah, because we both smoke crack really young. Hell yeah. So you were like, oh, I smoke crack at 15 too. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yeah. I, used yeah, to, yeah. I remember you told me you used to cook it up on a spoon. And I was like, yeah, me too. I loved cooking up crack. Mm-hmm. I loved getting my friends that just snorted coke to smoke crack. Yeah, yeah, I'm like, it's I, the same, guys. Yeah. Oftentimes, like, hey, let's go get coke. And then we'd be getting crack. Hell yeah. And then they'd be like, wait, <laughs> what are you doing? I remember I was in the car with... Uh, Santiago and I was like, "Hey, I gotta go get coke," and I bought crack. And he was looking at me and he goes, "Man, it's just like dope sick love." I don't know if you remember. <laughs> oh, I that loved that sh- that loved the documentary on HBO. I watched it before oh, I got God. into drugs, it and I a, loved it then. It was a mood. It was like a I wanted to do whatever Sebastian! they were doing. Oh my Sebastian. God. I think that was before I. You smoked crack. Yeah, me too. And, and that I, made me want to smoke crack. Me too. I was like, that shit looks fire. Oh my god! And they sh- they smoke it in the back of a taxi. Yeah. And yeah, if you guys haven't seen it, it's like these like couples living in New York City that are drug addicts, and it's not glamorized at all. It's a love story. I guess. <laughs> Remember the woman? There's like a Lily woman like performing sexual acts behind an alley for five dollars. Yeah. There's a guy that does it too. And I was like, I want to do. Yeah. You know what? I watched that documentary as a kid. And one, till today, that is the most hardcore, realistic, real view of addiction that I've ever seen. Way more than like intervention or anything. This was just so raw. Raw. I also watched another one called Methadonians. And it's about people addicted to methadone. It's pretty. I haven't seen that. It's pretty raw. And I remember as a kid being like, methadone don't look too bad. I mean, they got jobs or doing laundry, you know. They know where it's coming. They know where it's coming. Yeah, it's fine. It's safe, you know? Hell yeah. I hear it lives in your bones. <laughs> yeah. I know. That's what it is. All that stuff gets in your bones. <laughs> I remember hearing that in detox. Yeah. Meth is in your bones. I don't think that's true, but I just think that... Uh, <laughs> they it, say that, though, don't it, they? Yeah, they do. They do. I mean, I've said it for years. It's the same. I'm right? saying it now. The white lighter also gets you arrested. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. All right. So when you met me, I had uh, high socks. What else? High socks... You had a little baby fat on you still. Yeah, it was chubby. Sweet little chubby little brown boy. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we were just cool. You know what I mean? Yeah, back then it was uh, it was an interesting time. You know, like I think back to those times, like some of the best times of my life. It was really 
such a special moment in time, I feel like, for a lot of us, because we were all very young at staying clean. Mm-hmm. That's, like, all we were doing, I feel like. Yeah, that Actually, was though, it. you were doing real work. Yeah, I remember people used to make fun of me. <laughs> yeah, Brian actually did real work. And we yeah, were like, I had a sponsor. Brian? I was in the meeting, gross. Yeah, I was up front. I was listening. I was like <laughs> really taking were. notes down. You really were. I was like really in it. And there was like another group of kids that were fairly young, 19, 20. I thought everyone was taking it serious. I thought right, like, right. I didn't know that some people only had sponsors by name or like, I thought everyone with a year clean had worked all 12 steps. I didn't know that people were clean. <laughs> like, this is AA? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that people were clean like a year and didn't do anything and uh, would shortly relapse. And then people would be like, yeah, that guy gets like a year clean all the time, you know? Well, so I remember you kind of being in the riffraff in the very beginning. And I remember a very clear moment where you separated yourself mm-hmm. from that. Well, everyone else relapsed, you know, because yeah. it was like a group of us. And I remember I came in and you guys... Or other people had like six months clean, eight months clean. And then a few months went by. When I had four months, I was the only one standing. And then I like started to realize like, you know, wow, these people are coming in. And I seen it happen. I seen someone put together with the job, with the car, with the girl. And then a week later, they'd be homeless, strung out, raising their hand in a meeting, crying that they lost everything. Right. And I don't know if it was like I wasn't just mature for my age, but I just knew that I don't know if you guys needed it, but like I needed to be here. I did too. You stayed clean for a long time. I did. I did. Yeah. If people don't know, it was a 10 o'clock meeting every night of the week. And that's where we all went every night we were there. All the young misfits in Fort Lauderdale were at this meeting. Yeah. And we rarely even went into the meeting. We like would sit in the parking lot, (laughs) you know, I guess I was like 20, 21. We were playing truth or dare. No, we were playing therapist. We were playing a lot of things. Yeah, we played truth or dare. I think we played spin the bottle a couple of times. I think we created even more trauma <laughs> for people playing these dumb games. But yeah, Brian learned real quick that he was just too good for this. Mm-hmm. And he was just not trying to participate. Yeah, and eventually was like, well, I mean, I want to go inside, you know. And then you, and then you didn't come to the meeting as much either. The 10 o'clock? Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe after I had a year, I think at like when you a, could handle it. <laughs> I think at a year, I was. I remember people were like, "I remember I had a year clean, and that's when I started speaking at meetings." Oh, so right. I started, and you, weren't you excited about that? I was practicing all year. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, was, I was like, when I got asked to speak for the first time, I was like, "Hell yeah!" I was excited. <laughs> I remember you sharing about how much you couldn't wait to speak at a meeting or get a medallion uh-huh, or whatever. Uh-huh. After two months clean, I was like, I'm speaking at a convention, you know, like like I was just rehearsing my medallion speech. So that's when I started getting invited to different meetings and people would say, where's your home group? And I would say the 10 o'clock. And then people would look at me and cringe and go, ooh. (laughs) And I'd be like, what's so bad about that? And they'd be like, well, what other meetings do you go to? Right, right. And they're like, wow, you must be going to like some really good meetings. And I'm like, well, that's basically it. Like, what other meetings do you go to? And I was like. That's it. That's it. And I remember people making comments like there's more recovery at a bar than that meeting or whatever. Right. And I was like, I don't know, man. I, I hear some positive stuff when I go. It was loony. I mean, you had people standing on chairs. And I thought all meetings yes, were we like did. this. But 
but it was fun. Like you it never, was fun. you never knew what was gonna happen. And it kept us clean, and it saved a lot of our lives. One thousand percent. You know, it was not for everybody. It was not for every addict. Mm-hmm. First of all, any meeting after nine o'clock is ludicrous. It's gonna get a little loose mm-hmm. because you're either a young kid. Or you're this old guy who doesn't have to go to work in the morning. Right. Just creeping. And like, what are you kids. doing, bro? Right. It's a Tuesday at 10 o'clock. Oh, that is a that You're is 50 a years old. You're over at this story. meeting. Yeah. <laughs> and at the time, those were like the people with clean time. But like, even though the people with clean time had clean time, they were like something. They didn't do social skills that well, if that makes sense. Like, they didn't, Absolutely. They weren't like productive members of society. Right. Or they were like retired. I, I don't even know. That was an interesting um transition for me coming here because the only older guy i knew was my dad and he's very much like a dad so then coming and meeting these older men that are my dad's age but like acting like children yeah was like a bizarre thing to see like wait why are you why are you talking to her like you that? old <laughs> yeah, like, you should be like how is that your friend <laughs> yeah, like, what's, yeah. what's going on in recovery on? there's no like I'm the adult and you're the kid. No, no, it's no. Kind of, it's like whatever. I remember. Um, I guess we're all equal, right? We really are. I remember there's this woman, Penny. I don't know if you remember her. Mm-mm. I don't know why I don't know that name. I was like this one older lady, Penny. And I remember she must have been like 50. And me and her were just like, cool. Like, and her life was fucked up. You know what I mean? <laughs> I she was like, you know, whatever. And, you know, you create bonds with people that are totally out of your right. typical yeah, yeah. what you're going to be mm. friends with. People yeah. that don't even listen to the same type of music. They don't dress like you. They don't act like you. And then right. everyone's dispersed. People are from all sorts of places in the right. country, you know? Yeah, I remember sharing a lot of burning desires when I got clean, you know? You shared a lot of burning desires. Listen, we all did. Yeah. There was times, and I'm not even kidding you guys, there was times, and you'll corroborate this, there was times at the 10 o'clock meeting where the whole meeting was just burning desires. Mm-hmm. Remember that? Yeah. Like speakers wouldn't even get to speak because, because it was there's all so many burning, burning desires. desires. People are like, I feel like using me too. <laughs> me too. You know what I do? I want to hurt somebody. You know what I really remember? And I know this because I wrote it in my diary. Like I still keep a diary till today. But like I remember. You've always been talking about that little diary. <laughs> I remember I wrote like, you know, Austin got his year. And I remember when you, I think you got a year or two year medallion and you did not want to pick it up. And you felt like using. Do you remember did this? I? Yeah, I have it. Like, I think you like started crying, like you wanted to use that bad at your medallion. And when I first got clean, oh, I think I was going through like, um, like breakup, breakup crying, new love, new love crying. Yeah, I think that's maybe what was happening. Probably, I don't remember, but I just remember you not wanting to be there and you saying you didn't want to be there and this sucks, but like this is what we do. You know, when I first got clean, that would like discourage me. I'm like, that's what I got to look forward to. You get a year clean and you're fucking crying. You right. feel like shit. You want right. to get high. Right. And then as I stayed clean, I realized, you know, you share the burning desire so you don't have to share that you're coming back. Right. You know, I started to see that there's something really cool about someone who has clean time, who's able to raise their hand and say, yeah, bro, it's not all good right now. Right. But at first I used to be like weirded out by it. Like, bro, keep that shit to yourself. No, and I feel that too. And I, and I went through a, a phase in my recovery where I thought, you know. You need to be a better example and look, mm-hmm. judging other people. And you have ten years clean, and you why are you be sharing on your phone this? And, and yeah, all this and shit. putting those same like expectations on myself. Mm-hmm. And eventually, I was like, I don't want to make myself feel guilty or anyone else for just like being me. Yeah, I used to judge people with a lot of clean time and be like, you know, like I always talk about how I used to really judge George K. 
Yeah. <laughs> I remember. Didn't we all? He had like seven years clean and he was like cursing and screaming and he'd leave a meeting early. He was on his phone the whole time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I remember like really judging him. And then I got to know him and I realized that, you know what, if he was at a meeting, it was probably his second or third meeting of the day. Right. And right, he didn't right. really feel like paying True attention, but that. he was there. And then he would leave and say, fuck this meeting. But I didn't know that he'd be leaving to go to another meeting. Right. And then he'd take like five newcomers with him and drive to West Palm. And, you know, at the end of the day, he was helping people. And now I just don't look at like other people's like, but I don't care what you do. Right, you know? right, right. Back then, I used to be all into the gossip. Like, did you hear so-and-so with eight years clean <laughs> lost his house due to gambling? I'd be like, right. no way. Right. Now I'm like, that's it. Like, that's, you know, like. <laughs> amateur. Amateur, you know. <laughs> You're from Texas, right? I'm from Texas. And I just want to go back to what you were saying, because I feel like you can relate to, is when you get clean that young, because you got clean at what? 17. 17. I got clean at 19. And I had years clean. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely like an ego that comes along with that, I feel like. Yeah, once you, you get you clean, know? young, and you have years, you kind of start looking down at people that can't get it. Right. You know, you're like <laughs> right. looking at people that like right. don't have sponsors right. and like they're struggling so much and you're like, why? You right. know, like never paid a bill in your life. Yeah. yeah. Like, Living at my parents' together, house. Nancy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, that's why I think going to meetings and staying going to meetings is so important because it reminds you that, you know, you are sick too. Well, yeah. And I want to say, you know, I think you have transitioned through that very gracefully thank you and i think the longer i stay clean the more i uh less think about like what other people think or like trying to be a famous person in an anonymous program right, right you know like i'm not really trying to go there to get people to think i'm perfect or to share something really amazing and i used to wonder like how come all these people this clean time don't even share sometimes mm. now i kind of go to meetings i don't really share that much right, because right. i don't need to like be the center of attention right. But there was times where, like, I had a year clean or two years clean. And I was, like, raising my hand every five minutes. Hell, yeah. Hell, and you, yeah. And you just realize that it doesn't work. Like, I can have everybody here thinking I'm X, Y, and Z. And it still's not going to make me feel any better about mm-hmm. myself, you know? Yeah, you eventually have to uh, do the inside. I think that's a transition people go through with church and with work and all this yeah, stuff. Yeah, just age know? in general, I mm-hmm. think. Just more life experiences, you know. And it's been proven throughout my life. Anything I've judged anybody for, I have then experienced mm-hmm. myself after. For sure. So that judgment turns into compassion, into mm-hmm. empathy. You know what I mean? When I first got clean, I wasn't really close to that many people with the years clean. And then when I became close to people with like way more clean time, I realized like, well, these people are not perfect. They're fucked up and like it like shatters this idea of them. That's tough too. But it's kind of comforting to be like, man, I thought this guy was all that. And he's he's just just figuring it out too. Which I think is like. (laughs) You don't have a driver's license. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think is like the biggest thing for newcomers because like, you know, they look at people with clean time and they think you got it all together. And then uh, you break it to them like, hey, man, there's no Santa Claus. (laughs) Listen, I still hate myself. Yeah, I still hate myself. <laughs> I still struggle. I still right. have. To... I remember the first time I called my sponsor, and I was like, "Man, I feel like using." And he was like, "Me too." And I was like, "No, <laughs> no, you're not supposed to say that. You're supposed to say like it's gonna get better." Right, He's like, right, "Shit, right, bro, I feel right, like using too." Right. And that empathy and that connection was, so... and I knew he wasn't gonna use. Right. So I realized like he wasn't gonna. You know, pat me on the back and like come over my house and say it's gonna be okay. He was like, "Me too, bro. I got work. I gotta go to work though. I'll call you later." Right, you know? right. All right. So you're from Texas. I'm from Texas. Yes. All right. Let's start with uh, your story. Where did it all begin? 
Where did it all begin? Oh, I mean, I feel like I have the standard, you know, never feeling a part of, never feeling like I quite fit in. You know, being really effeminate was really hard for me growing up mm -hmm. because I was so judged by everyone. And I definitely was a child that was very painfully aware of all my surroundings. Even at a young age, I knew when I was being judged. I knew when I was being talked about. I knew when adults were talking about me mm -hmm. and the way I was talking, the way I was moving. Uh, I remember a teacher stopping me in the halls in sixth grade, adjusting my arms and saying, walk like this. Wow. In front of other students. And I was like humiliated. And I still think about that sometimes when I'm walking. Mm -hmm. Like, how am I walking? Am I, am I okay? Do mm -hmm. I look masculine enough? Am I manly enough for you now? You do look pretty manly with that beard. <laughs> I was thinking, because sometimes... Oh, honey, it's all a facade. Because <laughs> sometimes, you know, you haven't seen someone in so long, you just think that they're going to look like they look like... like yeah, I thought right. that when I was opening the... When you opened the door, I didn't know... I don't know what I expected you to look like, but this was not it. <laughs> yeah. We are grown men now. Yeah, we're adults now. For anybody listening, we are very butch. Masculine. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, because when you came in, you're this skinny kid. And bit. like really emo. But that was the mood. This that was, was the mood back. I was pretty emo seven, too. Eight. Yeah, yeah. That's like what it was. Yeah, I mean, I, you were beyond your time. I, think, I, I was wearing skinny jeans before they made them in men's. It was women's jeans. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah, so I've always been a trendsetter in that way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so obviously growing up and having like these like feminine behavior that you're trying to correct is something that is obviously like an issue in your life. How did your family think about it? That was the thing. My mom was always, you know, she didn't care. She would let me be whoever I wanted to be. And, but it was like, I would want to do her hair. Right. And she would let me, but if we heard my dad walking up the stairs, we'd have to throw the brush, you know, dad can't <laughs> see this, which yeah. is like fucked up. Yeah. It instilled all this shame. And secrets. Secrets. I, I couldn't, I had friends that were girls. I was made to feel shameful about that. I couldn't stay at their houses because boys don't stay at girls' houses. And they couldn't <laughs> stay at my house. So, like, there was a lot of that, like, childhood experience that I didn't really have, mm -hmm. you know? I hate to look back and see it was so different back then because it makes me feel old. But it is. <laughs> because I hear clients, like, today, you know, women tell me about their children and kids at school. Kids are gay at school. They're out at very young ages now. And it, like, wasn't like that for me. Yeah, growing up, even in my grade, we had kids that were super feminine. And you knew that they were probably gay. But, like, you also didn't want to say, hey, you're gay because you right. talk, right. you know, feminine or you walk right. feminine or right. anything. Right. Because at the same time, as kids, you didn't really know. I definitely don't remember anyone except for one person being openly gay in middle school. But he was, like, super cool. He was the man, you know. Hell yeah. It was uh, in South Florida. I'm sure it might be different in other towns. I'm sure in right, other towns right, right. it wasn't, like, no one thought this was, like, one of the coolest well, kids in school. But there's something to be said about owning who you are and presenting that and that shifts the way people treat yeah, you. Yeah, because you couldn't make fun of him for being gay because he was like, yeah, bitch, I'm gay. Right. Like, let's mean? go. Yeah. Like, did you ever try to be really masculine? No, I think I just learned really early that that was not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> okay. People are like, when did you come out? I was like, honey, I could... <laughs> there was no way that I could ever pretend to be straight. And I didn't want to be. And for some reason, I always had this, like, feeling that whatever this is, this shitty little town in Texas, like, whatever this is, these people, this environment, like, I knew this was not permanent it, yeah. for me. 
You know, I'm like, I don't know what this is, but I don't care because I'm not going to be here for long. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize treatment was what was going <laughs> to take me out of there. Yeah. You know? So, you know, you get older. What was like, you know, middle school, high school like? I was always like uh, in the gifted and talented and honor roll, a honor roll and elementary and a little bit into middle school. And then whenever like I had to start doing homework, I was like, no, nah, like this is really I'm good on this. So the second things got a little too like hard. I was like, no. And I began to find like my humor, making people laugh like that fulfilled me. Yeah, you're one of the funniest people I've ever met. <laughs> Thanks, but like I'm so a big fan. I think acting out in that way in school, like I liked the attention, mm-hmm. I liked what that was. But I was like in summer school by the time I was in seventh grade. So from honor roll to like summer school, not even touched a drug yet. Interesting. You know. When did you uh, start using or having like you know those types of like behaviors? I think I smoked weed for the first time when I was 12, 13. I was like, oh, man, this is what's up. Like, whatever this feeling is, like, I want to feel this all the time. I felt like I had found my missing piece. Mm -hmm. And it made me comfortable with the lonesome because I felt very lonely in my childhood. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I felt the only time I could be myself was when I was locked in my room you know what I mean? Whether it was drawing or painting or styling a wig or whatever. You know what I mean? So then smoking the weed, I was like, man, I really don't need anybody. And then it progressed. And then it progressed. Yeah, as soon as I felt that, I knew that I wanted to experience every drug out there. And, like, I hate that, like, everyone's story is kind of similar because then people are like, oh, so weed is, like, the gateway drug. And I'm just like, I don't know if I would say, like, weed's a gateway drug. I just feel like if you're an addict, you know, once you start picking something up that you are interested in, it starts to, you know, snowball, whether it's anything, you know? Yeah, I think it's just, it's never enough. Whatever I was doing was never enough. So I needed to keep going further and further. I never had this um, fear of drugs, you know? Did you ever get, like, reprimanded by your parents or anything like that for smoking? Yes, absolutely. That's the thing, because as soon as I started, I was sloppy, You know, like my sisters, my older sisters, they had smoked and they had, you know, dabbled in ecstasy or whatever, but they were never like caught like me Mm -hmm. because they weren't so sloppy. I was like leaving like dime bags in my jeans and my mom was finding it or, you know, like coming home smelling like a pound. Yeah. My parents saw what normal, quote, normal weed smoking looked like with my sisters. How did they try to correct that behavior? Punishing me? Yeah. Yeah. My dad, you know, yelling at me or, you know, that was really it. Mm -hmm. And then... um. When did you start getting into like harder drugs? How did you get into harder drugs? Did you have like a bunch of friends that got you into it? So I had a friend and she was older and she had a car and that was like everything at that point. And I was 14 and I think she was 16. So she would pick me up from school and she'd call and pretend to be my mom and sign me out. And and her mom sold Coke and smoked crack. And so her mom started giving us Coke and we knew that she smoked crack. And I just remember I would like be like, I got to get that crack. Like whatever she's doing in that bathroom, like I got to do it. Mm -hmm. So I like begged her one day to like, let me hit it. And she did. I remember her being like, all right, let it out, let it out. And I was like, (laughs) and oh my God, what a vibe that was. And it felt How old were you? I was 14. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's the same time I started. And I didn't even know, like, how it worked. So one time I, like, went into the bathroom and I found her pipe. 
her mom's pipe. Mm-hmm. And I saw, like, you couldn't see it. I don't know how much we can talk about drugs here. You but. could ex- So, like, you know, you, you know, with crack, like, you can't, once it's melted, it's in the chore boy. Yeah, yeah. But it's still very much in, in there. there. Yeah, you could hit the chore as, for a long right. time. Right. I didn't understand that. I thought, like, this it is. It was empty. It's empty. And if there's something left for me, cool. But, like, it's obviously gone. Yeah, it's not like weed where, like, you know, you find an empty pipe and you could keep hitting it. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. So I just assume, like, this is, this is her leftover. She, and so I just proceed to like smoke it. And I'm like, the first time I'm like, oh, wow, she left a lot in here. She forgot about this. And mm-hmm. <laughs> I just like kept going to the bathroom. And then her mom realized, and it was like a big fight. And me and her daughter had like a big falling out as a result. Yeah. So that's that. Um, When did it like quickly turn into like a hardcore addiction? I don't know how you classify hardcore, but from the very second I smoked weed for the first time, I did everything I could to make sure I was high every day. Mm-hmm. And then the crack was like intermittent here and there. And and for a while, I didn't tell my parents that I had a falling out with my friend. And I would get dropped off at her house, go to the dealer that was nearby, and then just go into the woods and cook and smoke crack by myself. Mm-hmm. And then call my parents to pick me up. Yeah, I'm done hanging out here. I'm done. I'm good. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I think it's so crazy when I see like 14-year-olds today what that looks like. Yeah, especially because it's like I remember every time my parents picking me up after I was high that today's the day they're going to look at me and be like, you smoked crack. (laughs) And like every day they would pick me up and look at me and they would be like looking at me weird. And I'd just be like looking straight. And then like no one said nothing, you know? I remember having lockjaw. I remember like, you know, sniffling my nose and being like, it's obvious now. And for a long time, like uh, they would pick me up. And that's why I didn't like weed because like you could just smell it on you. Right. But when I started doing coke, they eventually started to notice. But there's a lot of times where they would pick me up where I'd come home and, you know, I'd go straight to my room and my mom would knock on my door and like look at me. I would be like, she's got to know I'm high. And she would look at me and I'd say I'm tired and look down and go to sleep. Do you think they really didn't know or did they just choose to not always acknowledge it? I think it's both. I think my mom knew and I think my dad like didn't want to really address it. Yeah. There was times when my dad would leave money out and I would take it and buy drugs. And every time I'd be like, well, he knows that I took the money. Right. The next day there'd be more money in his wallet. And I'd be like, does he want me to get high? You know what I mean? Like, like, is he okay with it now? He just doesn't want to say anything. And I honestly till today think that he just didn't know that his money was missing or Mm. know that I was taking the debit card. Cause when he did find out he like lost it. And this whole time I was like, Oh, I thought we had like a mutual thing going. Right. right. You know? So I think that now that I'm an adult, it's like, bro, my cat could be a different color some days and I wouldn't even notice, you know, I'm just so busy (laughs) with my own life. You know what I mean? Like, like, daddy's busy. Yeah. (laughs) So sometimes like now that I'm an adult and I see like how much my father was working. Right. And like, I share about this, like, you know, as a kid, I remember my dad coming home and being really tired and not wanting to be bothered. Mm-hmm. Like, my dad worked his ass off. Mm-hmm. So, like, when he came home, there was times where he just wasn't talking. Like, he just didn't. Right. You're right. going out with your friends, okay. Yeah. And put the TV on and he's out. No, that's a good point. I think a lot of it is just them being tired. They're just tired. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you know, my mom would kind of, like, ask questions and be like, what's wrong with you, you know? And then, you know, you just, you know, swat her away like a bug. Right. And, then, right. and then you Leave go, me alone. Leave me alone, bitch. <laughs> and then you get mad for them thinking that you're getting high. Right. How dare right. you even think that, whatever. And then you get really defensive. Now they don't want to bring it up anymore because uh. they know you're going to 
blow up on them. It makes me sick thinking about all the gaslighting I did to my parents at that age. My dad would be like, why are you doing all these drugs? Like, you, you're the one. <laughs> like, my parents were pretty good parents, you know. I hit my dad with that. I relapsed with five years clean, and I started shooting dope down here, and I had to go back home to my parents. I lost my apartment, my job, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. And he came in my room without knocking, and you would have thought I was like 12 years old. At this yeah. point, I'm like 25. And I lost my shit. And I proceeded to let him know why he was the reason that I have all these issues that I have. Why I, I can't be intimate. While I struggle being vulnerable. Why I don't trust men. Like mm. all this like real shit. Like real shit I had learned, you know, while I was here. But just the delivery was really ugly, mm-hmm. which I've had to make amends for. Yeah. And that's kind of what. You know, I do what I'm using is that um, I try to think of the nastiest thing I can think of to get this person not thinking about me. Right. right. And I want them to think that it's their fault. And I want to play the blame game. You know, I remember telling my parents that like, you know, I owe drug dealers mad money, which was kind of true. But like, I remember like, (laughs) you know, like I fear for my life and like all these things. And like, you know, my parents thinking like, what is my son involved in and putting like a guilt trip on them. It was more about like, if I say something really crazy, they're going to stop caring so much. Right. So when does it get like kind of out of control for you? When does it get out of control? I mean, the town I grew up in was predominantly black and Latino. It was mostly black. And that's where I grew up from, you know, when I was born to 15. 15, we moved like half an hour away and it was a more white town. Mm -hmm. So I started a new school at 15. It was predominantly white kids. And did you come out at that point? Were you out? I was out. I was, my parents found gay porn on my computer and it was just like, all right, you know, I guess we're doing this, which was like, whatever. My dad tried to tell me it was a phase. I was like, girl. (laughs) (laughs) So we moved to this new town and it was Mm -hmm. predominantly white and it was really culture shock for me. Cause like, and it sounds silly, but I thought white kids were like what I saw in Laguna Beach. I didn't understand like what that was like. I really didn't. And then when I started the school, I'm like, yo, this is exactly how it's portrayed in movies. There's like jocks and cheerleaders and like the stoners and the gothic kids. I was like, this is too much. And I did not know how to function. And I just went silent. I didn't speak at school. That's so weird. So weird. And I that, not just that, because I see you as like such an outgoing person now. It was like my really piss poor coping skill. Like if I get really quiet, nobody will see me. But really nothing's louder than somebody that won't talk. Mm-hmm. Like who's just like mute. Like the teacher would ask me questions and I just would not speak. And so early on, I was like, all right, this is not working for me. And that's when I started skipping school, smoking crack in the woods across the street. A lot of smoking crack in the woods in my story. And I went to rehab that year for the first time. I convinced my parents to come pick me up because it was local. Convinced them I would never do it again. And was using the night that I came home. Mm -hmm. Nothing else mattered to me than getting high. You couldn't tell me anything. Series of overdoses. I overdosed down. This sums up my teen years. I overdosed down the street with hair dye in my hair (laughs) and a bathrobe on. And I still had the hair dye gloves on. (laughs) And I have no recollection of it. Apparently... It was a whole scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there was multiple situations like that. When did you uh, make the decision to go to treatment again? The decision was made for me again. Like an intervention? Not an intervention, because my family, I think, is also just too tired to mm-hmm. orchestrate something like that. But I was sent to Florida for the first time uh, to go to rehab. And it was the first time I'd ever been clean. 
for that amount of time. And what I had was, fun. What was rehab like? What was rehab like? I mean, the pictures, they have the swimming pool and this and that. And then you show up. I remember we showed up and it was like two multifamily unit buildings with like a wooden fence. And I thought, oh, behind the fence must be the pool. Mm-hmm. And we open up the fence and it's like two picnic tables and a courtyard. And like, you know, people smoking cigarettes. I'm like, where the fuck is the pool? They're like, oh, that's our other facility. So it was definitely like... What's going on here? Mm-hmm. Like, where did you guys really send You know me? what's so funny is that when I got asked to go to detox, they're trying to get me to go to treatment. And the one question I asked was, is there a pool? I haven't been in the pool in years. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know why. My one question was like, is there a pool? You know, like, here I am. like, And like, you know, like my friend says, like, you know, you can't be a cherry picker when you got one cherry. You know, like, it's not like there was other options for me to go. It's not like I had like all this money that I could like pick a facility or whatever. It's so true. I thought that I deserved a pool. Yeah. And you're like, whoa, these people lied to me, whatever. Right. As if like the people who sold us drugs like sold us this story that like you're not going to go to rehab after this. Right, right, right. So you go to this treatment center and what was it like? I refused to tell my dad I had made it there. I refused to sign like the, the release, release. yeah, because we had had a physical altercation prior to that. So I was very angry with him and I refused to sign the release. And I remember the case manager bringing me into the office one day and she goes, will you please let your dad know you made it here because he's a very scary man. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, no shit. So eventually I did sign the release and talk to him. And that's when I met Janessa, you know. Yeah. And that is my one of my best friends that came out of that time in my life. Are you still friends with her? Still friends, still yeah. We don't talk oh. too much. We'll talk here and there. But that was like, um, I don't know if you have a similar experience of just like meeting your first clean bestie. Mm-hmm. Do you have that? Yeah. Do you I, guys do that? Well, my bestie used. So it was like, mm. so I would make besties and then they would use. And then like, I had this idea that I'm never going to have besties. Right. You know? So like, I would meet people in the program and like, they had nine months. I'm like, nine months? You guys are gods. And then <laughs> right. two days later, they're like, man, I overdosed in Overtown with a hooker with one arm and um, mm. sold my clothes to the dope man and whatever and then like i'd be like well let's get clean i try to motivate them and they're like nah bro like i'm gonna keep using and then i'm gonna be like what <laughs> like what about all this and literally the week before i'm at their halfway reading the just for today right, in the morning right, right. you know we're all talking about staying clean and then like some of them and you would think that people would use and come back to the program like a lot of my friends that i made once they used they didn't come back for a year well you didn't do treatment right i kind of did treatment but not with like there no one there was really an addict so I did an adolescent program. Oh, that's right. That's right. So I did this adolescent program for six months. And like one girl there was there because she like cut herself. This other kid was there because he like took a bunch of shrooms and like went into a psychosis state. This other kid was just like a behavioral issue. I was the only kid there that they were like, okay, well, this kid needs to go to meetings. Like no one else was really going to meetings at that treatment center. But I met everyone in recovery from the 10 o'clock. And then... um I really feel like I had no friends until I met Carl. And I didn't really mm-hmm. become friends with Carl until I had a year clean. Right, right, So right. my first year clean was pretty lonesome. And then, like, my friends that I grew up with, they're all using. Mm. So it's like, to me, I'm like, damn, like, how come I suck at using? Like, Didn't you go through a process of trying to get those friends clean once you got clean? Yeah. I mean, I was just trying to say, like, I would show up to the house where everyone's, like, shooting Dilaudids and smoking crack. right. right. And I'm like, hey, what's up, guys? Yeah. NA is so cool. Right, right. And I remember uh, my friends making slick comments like, oh, you think you're better than us because, like, you go to these classes. Oh, God, how unoriginal. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
And I remember being like, you guys should come. And like, I had friends that would go and they'd be on their phones the whole time. They would leave right, halfway right, through right, and then they would right. go and get high. My friends that I grew up with didn't start needing treatment until I was already clean four or five years. Mm. Like they had not much consequences. Right. They didn't really think stopping was like in the cards for them. So, all right, so you go to treatment, you meet Janessa. Yeah, my treatment experience was really good. I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for that time, how treatment was. I mean, I don't know how it is now. I've been to treatment several times. That time was one of the more structured times Mm -hmm. where it was zero tolerance. and You know what I mean? There was a lot of consequences, and those things make me feel safe. Mm -hmm. I like structure. That's one thing I've learned about myself. When I'm clean, I appreciate structure. I appreciate boundaries. You know what I mean? And it was a great time. Uh, I went to Halfway. And do you remember the first time you like really laughed clean? I don't remember the specific first time, but I do remember like experiencing that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's been funny like making these TikTok videos, <laughs> which are <laughs> which are all about like treatment. Yeah, yeah. So it's really bringing me back to yeah. those experiences. Those days, yeah. yeah, which is like I don't know, there's something very special about treatment because you have no responsibilities. It's kind of like the summer camp you never got to go to. It really is, It's though. like the summer camp really you never is. got to go to. And, you know, some people might hate it if they have, like, responsibilities. But I had, like, nothing going on. Right. So I was like, <laughs> right, right, right. this is cool. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. You know, totally. and, like, I stayed in treatment for a long time. And, and I got into the routine. And right. I got into the stupid little groups. Right. And, like, I got into, like, I learned how to paper mache and make noodle necklaces and be, that. like, arts and crafts, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I had fun in treatment towards the end. But, like, there was times where I hated it and I thought it was stupid. And, like, you know, my friends were on, you know, at the time, MySpace, like, at clubs. Right. <laughs> and I'm over here, like, doing, like, some uh, arts and crafts shit about, like, you know, my character defects or something. All right, so you go to treatment and then you come out and start going to meetings. Start going to meetings, going to halfway. I went into halfway with a bunch of dudes that I did not know. At that point in my life, especially, I really struggled with other men because men had just been so cruel to me prior to that, whether it was growing up, whether it was playing baseball, whether it was, you know, my dad. Like, so I really, in this halfway house, I went silent again. I didn't know how to cope with this and I just fucking went quiet. Which only caused more issues. I think I only stayed down for a few months, though, and then I went back home mm-hmm. and I started using again. And then when did you... So how many times did you go to dream before you stayed clean? Four. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, four. In Florida? No, it was twice in Texas mm-hmm. and then two more times in Florida. Gotcha. So the last time that you went at that time, the fourth time, what was treatment like then? Because obviously your first episode in treatment is totally different than your fourth one. You know? Right. So I went back to the same place. Mm-hmm. So they already knew me and I kind of had an idea of how things worked. I, that was a time where I wanted to go. I'm surprised I stayed clean after that, mm-hmm. you know, because I wanted it. Uh, and I stayed clean for five years after that. Yeah. What was uh, the leading situation that got you to start wanting to get clean? Because you got, see, like for me, like as soon as I got introduced to the program, I was like, there's a 
thing that I could do to stay clean. Like, (laughs) I was like, you know, it was like, you know, being in a desert with no water and then finding water. And then (laughs) like people that like (laughs) chose to just like, (laughs) you know, be dying of thirst. I was like, but there's water right here. As somebody who watched your experience, that's exactly what it looked like. (laughs) You were just like, oh, okay, I'll do this. And a part of me was like, because other people might thought like, oh, recovery's not cool or whatever. Like, there was right. something weird about going to this place with all these misfits. Because when I would go to the party, I felt like a total loser. Right, right, when right. I would go to a club, I felt like I was totally out of place. When I would go to school, I felt like I was mm-hmm. totally out of place. Mm-hmm. When I would go to a meeting, right at home. You right, know? Right. It really felt like this is the only place that I've ever felt that I didn't have to wear a mask. I didn't have to be cool. I didn't have to be. It's the first time I introduced myself as my real age to people. You used to say you were older. Uh, my whole life. When I was doing drugs, I was never like, hey, I'm Brian. I'm 12. You know? Right, 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 like, right. I right. always lied about my age. I always like had some type of facade going on. And like when I was using, I was like perceived as like cool. And like when I got clean, like I was crying in meetings. I was like raising my hand. I was participating. And like, and it was people in my, that lived in Broward County, but like no one knew me. And it right. felt good to be able to like reinvent yourself there. And then like, I grew up here. So, like, outside of school, people, like, I was telling someone today, like, at two years clean, people are still asking me where to get Coke. <laughs> and I would be like, hey, man, what's going on? Long time no see. I've been clean, like, two years. You know, I'm doing really good. And they like, oh, it's fire, bro. You know, I get any blow? Mm. And I'd be like, no, dude, I just told you I've been clean for years, you know? like So it was really hard for me to reinvent myself in the same town that I grew up in. Right. I find that to be interesting because mm-hmm. it's something I can't relate to. So what led you to want it this time? This, like this time, this time? I guess, no, the first time. I really, really despised that I had this thing called addiction. I just really grew to despise this about myself. I hated that I could not sit alone with myself without being under the influence. I hated that when I couldn't find drugs, I was chugging NyQuil. I hated that I was upstairs drinking a bottle of tequila. You know what I mean? Like, I just mm-hmm. like, but I could not sit with myself without being under the influence. And Are you doing opiates at this time too? Like, yeah, this time I was doing opiates. When did you get introduced to opiates? Whenever the overdosing started, so I guess like 16. Okay, so you like found crack and opiates pretty at the same time. Right. The crack was always something that was more kind of sprinkled in. I was like a little treat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but eventually that was like, I couldn't afford to do that usually. Uh, but always stealing pills from my mom. That was gotcha. a big one. Um, Xanax was like where it was at, I feel like. So yeah, I mean, my life was completely unmanageable. And mm-hmm. It was just very obvious that I was going nowhere. So when you get out of treatment this time, what is your experience like at Halfways in Recovery now that you're committed to staying clean? Okay, so I this is interesting. So I go to this halfway because something with my insurance and couldn't do treatment or whatever. So I go to this halfway house and it's like a cattle call halfway house, like, you know, 80 guys there mm-hmm. or something. I don't do well with that. I just told you I don't do well with men. And then 80 men, it was just like... It was very easy to get lost in the crowd. Uh, I was detoxing so badly that they had to put me in detox. And as a result, they did put me into treatment. So I did treatment, came back to that halfway house. And again, I went quiet. When I don't know what to do, I just don't do anything. And I remember I came home one day after going to a meeting and the owner grabbed me and was like, I don't think you fit in here. And he's like, I have another place for you to go. And at the time I was so angered by it. Looking back, it was the best thing that could have happened to me. I went to a three-quarter way house. It was smaller. It was a little more loose. 
So that was a more positive experience for me. Mm -hmm. When did you find, I guess, like your home group and like, what was that experience like? We're going back so far now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I think going back to what you were talking about, I just loved that I could be myself. Mm -hmm. I love, not only could I be myself, but I found people that like celebrated those parts of me Mm -hmm. that found me funny, that found me silly, that, you know, liked that I was feminine, that liked all those things about me, just being able to just be. Mm-hmm. Um, cause there is a kid part of me that just doesn't want anybody to leave. I just, nobody's anywhere to go. Right. And it was like during those meetings for that hour, like we have nowhere else to be, but with each other. And the little kid in me just really was gravitated towards that. And then the dinners after, and you know what I mean? Yeah. The camaraderie. And it's like this weird feeling of like, you know, you live your whole life thinking like, why me? Why me? And then like, you meet a whole bunch of other people that have like the same thing going right, on. Right. And you no longer feel like it's this like big issue because the person next to you has it, the person to the right of you has it. Right. And like, right. and you know, they're smiling and laughing. Uh, what was like your first year like? The first year I got into a relationship, which was, you know, obviously really good. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, but it, I mean, it really was like falling in love for the first time and all that stuff. And it was great. And then it was not. <laughs> but my first year was not a care in the world, honestly. Mm-hmm. And I didn't do a lot of like step work or anything. You know, I, it was just like hanging out and going to meetings. And but I loved it. How did you start mending your relationship with your family? We've always been cool. You know, we've never, you know, not spoke or not said I love you or whatever. But I didn't really start mending those relationships until a couple of years ago. Hmm. And that all came, especially with my father, a lot of that came from just living better myself, making better decisions, participating in life and having more compassion for him and how hard he's worked and how hard it must have been to raise us and mm-hmm. to pay the bills. And, you know, when you start doing those things yourself, you start to kind of understand a little bit more of the stress and yeah. what that takes. And I didn't know before. I was just some punk kid, mm-hmm. you know, getting money from my dad every month, blaming him for all my problems. Yeah. You know? What is uh, year one to five look like? What do you think led to the relapse? Um, didn't change my behavior. The literature, I think there's a, in the NA pamphlet, Triangle of Self-Obsession, I think. I could be wrong. Don't come for me. It says, um, we must grow up or die. And that is, that was my detriment. That mm-hmm. I refuse to grow up. I refuse. And this is just my experience and what I've seen in my life. I refuse to become fully self-supporting during that five years. I refuse to become responsible. I still took money from my father every month. I didn't address... Those behaviors that were causing me pain, uh, disturbing my peace, Mm -hmm. driving around with a busted headlight for two years, like (laughs) these things sound silly, but all these decisions make up how you feel about yourself. And I just never built any of that self-esteem or self-worth that using didn't scare me because I didn't feel like I had anything to lose at Mm -hmm. that point. You know, went to the casino a lot. That was like, you know. When did you... uh make the decision to use and like what was the relapse like so a lot of my using also is wrapped up in codependency with men in particular my ex who we dated when i first got clean after we broke up we just became really close friends and we had talked about using here and there i was in key west with my sister is it like a joke or serious i guess a little bit of both maybe yeah because i feel like that's how most of you know stupid things I've done have been like, I'm just joking around. And then like, you're not, you know? Right. No, I guess it was probably a little bit of both Mm -hmm. now that you ask. 
So I'm in Key West with my sister, like on vacation, and he calls me and he says, I just drank. And I said, okay, I'll call you right back. This was like one in the morning. I walked across the street, went to the gas station, bought a beer, chugged it. One beer. Yeah. And called him back and said, I drank too. <laughs> wow. Mm-hmm. Did you stop going to meetings at any point in time? I showed up to a couple after that, but I was stoned. Okay. And it was not a good experience. <laughs> Wait, did you stop going to meetings before you drank? No. You're still going to meetings. No. Just I, totally disconnected just, from a distance. Like, if that makes sense. Absolutely. My disconnect didn't come till after because mm-hmm. my brain couldn't comprehend how I had let go of so many meaningful relationships. Mm-hmm. I noticed my brain start to tell me that we weren't that close, that they were fake and they really cared about me. And it's because I couldn't understand. I couldn't accept that I had just kind of given all those relationships away. So, like, I have a friend that has years clean, and he's made a decision to start drinking. Over the years, what I've learned to do as protocol is I just check up on them every couple months. Mm -hmm. Not in a judgmental way. Right. Just like, hey, you know, just because you're not in recovery doesn't mean that, like, we're not still cool. And, like, I worry about it. You know, I hope you're okay. And if you ever feel like coming back, you can. But I'm not, like, pressuring you to, like, see if you are. And over time, like these people start giving me like really vague signs that they're not doing good, Mm -hmm. but they don't say it. They're like, yeah, well, it's not that great on this side either. What is, you know, (laughs) okay. Like, are you like shooting heroin or are you, yeah, do you need to go to meeting? Like, you know, and then like, I don't want to feel overbearing because I feel like sometimes that could be even worse. Right. So what happened after the beer? Uh, I could not wait. To smoke weed. And I was in school at the time, got weed at school, smoked it. Listen, if you don't smoke weed, <laughs> it is one of the craziest highs. I was like really panicking. I smoked yeah. a whole blunt by myself, hadn't smoked in five years. And I like almost lost my mind. Yeah. And I kept thinking, what if this never goes away? And then I'm not, about a week later, I was smoking crack. Hmm. It was just this domino effect. When you drank, did you think you were going to start doing other drugs? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I never I had that lie. Mm-mm. That like oh, I might have ver- gonna... I might have verbalized that to people, but I always knew what I really wanted to do, and it was not drink. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, a monkey might eat an orange, but we know it wants a banana. <laughs> you know what I mean? Hell like, yeah. So I mean, it's really hard to like once you cross those lines to go backwards because it's like you know once you have tried something, it's like you know once you put hot sauce on a taco, it's like you want hot sauce on the taco. You know what I mean? It's Point. like you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Once you have crossed lines into drugs, it's very hard to say, well, I'm just not going to cross those lines anymore. I'm going to stay over here. Right, right. So especially, I mean, this is for people that are non-addicts. I mean, if if you're an addict, it's like, what are lines, you know? (laughs) Right. Okay, so then what happens? So then, yeah, I'm using, I link up with um, this guy, Chris, who became my boyfriend. He since has passed away. And we were using together. He had always been using, and I'd always had, like, this crush on him. I remember when I started using, I'm like, this is my chance. I'm like, hey. (laughs) So I'm getting high. At that point, it was just, like, it wasn't opiates yet. And not to say that it was, like, a big party, but it kind of was a party, honestly. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, like, dark and gross yet. Were you IV using at that point? Yes, but just, like, um, we would shoot Molly sometimes. Yeah, real gentleman, like... (laughs) We weren't like dope sick yet. You yeah. Know what I mean, bottled water stuff. Huh? Like shooting up with bottled water. Oh, hell yeah. yeah. A little Evian. <laughs> Never Dasani. Um, 
but honestly in this and i'm not trying to glamorize it but i'm and also because he's passed so i just have such like um fond memories of him in that time where it really was there was this brief window where it really was just like so fun mm -hmm. um and i think it's important to acknowledge that because it, it acknowledges the progression of the disease that it does not stay that way yeah it's like the movie candy right <laughs> <laughs> because like right. it's like a real love like you know i really loved using like yeah. i really did there was like times where i had so much fun or whatever and the sad reality is that um that those times are short-lived and they don't outweigh the consequences to come right you right, know what right, i mean it's right. like it's like the rainstorm before the hurricane right and like you're outside like oh this is cute and fun <laughs> and then like you got katrina happening there was nothing like you know tripping on acid being in love laying in the grass on a blanket you mm -hmm. know listening to music yeah that was wonderful and i wish it could have stayed that way but mm -hmm. it didn't you know what happened Anytime I, we would do Xanax together, I would like freak out and say I wanted to get clean. And he would be like, that's fine, but I don't. Mm -hmm. And we'd have these like big arguments, you know, these like Xanny bar, <laughs> stupid, like, you know. And I don't know when we started doing dope, but yeah, we started shooting dope and it was just like not fun anymore, man. Especially like where we were living. It was like, there was no dope anywhere. So like, it was just a lot of like seeking dope out. Mm -hmm. That was what it was. I came home one day and I said, I'm getting clean. That was always my thing. I'm like, I'm getting clean. I'm going to detox. So either, or I said, I'm getting clean. So either you need to get clean or we can't be together. And he's like, all right, well, I'm leaving. And he left. And I went to detox, got out. Do you remember me picking you up at the McDonald's? I do, vaguely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what was that? I remember you just texted me and you were like, hey, I don't feel safe. Really? And it wasn't like you were just like, I don't know who else to call. And I think like we went to a meeting or something. Where'd you pick me up at? It was at the McDonald's on University, like right by the 10 o'clock. Wow. And I remember you had like a big ass iced coffee, I think. Did I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like a big ass iced coffee. And I swear it looked like the coffee was holding you up. <laughs> yeah, because I was. I remember you just look like, you just look like you were dead. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I remember just being like, because, you know, I had seen the other Austin. Mm -hmm. I'd only seen the other Austin. Right. I've only heard about this Austin, you know? So it's like, I got introduced to the person you have been sharing about for five years and mm -hmm. I had known you for five years. And you know, you will attest to this, like when you get clean with people, you might not see them for years, but you're like, no, like we got clean together. Like, right. like we have this bond. Yeah. Even the people you don't like. Yeah. There are people that I hate, but I'm like, yeah, but we were there for each other. Right, if you need something. Yeah. It's yeah. like, I saw you raising your hand, going through your shit, even though I was judging you the whole time. Right, I was right, right. raising my right. hand, going through right. my shit too. And it really sucked to see you like that. And then I remember like, you didn't stay clean after that. You just like left, jumped out of my car and was like, whatever. Yeah, I mean, I must have been using. Yeah. When, <laughs> like specifically during that time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You were hardcore using. Yeah. You were hardcore yeah. using at that time, really struggling. Really, every day was just like, you know, just a grind of like mm -hmm. trying to like get by, trying to like not be sick anymore. I remember specifically 
I kept shooting up with these dirty cottons and I kept getting cotton fever from them mm. and I just kept doing it. And it was like the third time. Can you explain what cotton fever is to people that don't know? I mean, I don't fully understand. It's just uh, some kind, I guess it's some kind of like bacteria, bacteria or something. That gets them, yeah. And I would just start like shaking uncontrollably. Like mm-hmm. I felt super cold and I couldn't control my body. Like it wouldn't stop. So like Chris sometimes would like turn a bath on. I would like, go sit in the bathtub and like try to like warm up. And I remember like I passed out in the bath one time. I don't know. So yeah, so it happened to me again, and I call my mom to Western Union Money at Publix, and she says she will. And I'm walking in the rain, and I'm as I'm shivering, mm-hmm. I had crashed my car at that point. I remember thinking, like, how did I get here? Like, I used to have a pretty good life. I used to like go to dinners with friends mm-hmm. and be invited to birthdays and baby showers, and now I'm walking to Western Union in the rain. Yeah, now the busted headlight doesn't seem so bad. I'm t- <laughs> I wish I took better care of her. Yeah. Wait, that's a funny story. So um, me and Chris have been up. We were shooting coke, right? And it was like, we've been up for maybe five days. So we're going to meet the plug. Somebody we know works at Starbucks and they have a plug. There's always the middleman. Mm-hmm. So we're going to the Starbucks and we get to the parking lot and he's coming out. He's like, yeah, the plug's going to be here, whatever. And I just have a, a freak out. I'm like, no, I'm done. I'm done. We are done. We are going home. <laughs> and Chris is like, no, but she's about to be here. I'm like, no, we are done. And so we, I turn around and we're driving down Wilton Drive and I'm falling asleep. And I'm like, yo, Chris, I'm falling asleep. And he's falling asleep. And he's like, I'm falling asleep too. And I'm like, yo, you got to keep me awake. I fall out. I wake up real quick. I realize I'm about to crash into a car. I crash into the car. She gets out. She's pregnant. I've been up for five days. She's screaming, you killed my unborn child. You killed my unborn child. I did not kill her unborn child. <laughs> she was fine. Mm. I'm crying. I'm freaking out. Tow truck had to come. And that's when I lost my car. So you're walking in the rain at Western, going to Western Union. Western Union, yes, yes. <laughs> um, just one of those moments where I look back and I, in that moment, I was, the disease had me so genuinely confused as to how I got there. I was genuinely confused and looking back it's so clear how i got there it was the first one Mm -hmm. it was that first drink in key west you know but the disease loves to keep you just so baffled and confused and victimized just completely victimized to life i would say that it starts when you start to separate yourself from other people at meetings Agreed. All right, Brian. I'll give you that one. <laughs> you know, I really think because you could still go to meetings and have yeah, a sponsor. Yeah, but you can separate yourself from people. Separation. But you can yeah. separate yourself from people and reconnect without yeah. using. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? No, for sure. I mean, yeah, that's the point of no return. Right. Of course. But you can return. Yes, you're right. I'll give you that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's always been kind of the conundrum of like, you know, once you pick up, you can't stop, and it's like, well, we do though. Mm-hmm. It's normally not under your own will. All right, I'll give you that. It's kind of circumstantial. (laughs) True, true. You know, it's usually like, you know, the police or something. So how did you uh, get out of that? Out of that space? That using. How long did you relapse for? About a year. Okay. I had been using about six months at that point. Called my dad. There was a whole slew of things. He ended ended up buying a new car down here. He co-signed for me. I always say I know I was using because I bought a PT Cruiser. (laughs) (laughs) You was high. (laughs) I was high and I was like shooting up literally in like the Chevy, I don't know, bathroom. And it was a whole, there was a lot of paperwork involved. And I'm just like, yo, this is like too much. I'm just trying to like get a car and get out. I went through a phase of renting cars. 
before I got that car, we I would just rent cars because they just would like take like an initial deposit and then just leave you alone. So they would always call and be like, all right, awesome, bring that car back. We got to give you like another car. I'm like, all right, fine. And then one day I'm at the crack house and the car won't start. Mm. And I call them like I'm a white woman. I'm like, this car will not start. This is unacceptable. <laughs> bring me a new car immediately. So they bring me a new car. I get in the new car. I'm leaving. They call me. They go, sir, you were out of gas. <laughs> You're like, that is bullshit. <laughs> I'm like, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> I worked that angle with cars a lot. The car salesman brought me the PT Cruiser. I said, all right, well, come pick me up from the spot. So I made that guy come to the dope spot. So yeah, eventually I called my dad. I said, dad, I have to come home. I hate to tell you, but I need to kick at your house. I need to kick dope. I'm trying the Suboxone thing myself. It's not working. I remember I cut little slivers and I had a little mm -hmm. detox plan with these Suboxone strips and it wasn't working. Yeah, I'm going to take this much the first yeah, day yeah, and yeah. I'm going to take this much the second day. <laughs> After day four, I should be totally yeah, good. I have like a little ruler. I'm like, yeah. okay, the first day is like a full one, then a, then a, mm -hmm. a, a half, then a third. I called my dad, said I need to come home and kick. He's like, what is kick? I'm like, I need to get off heroin. Uh, show up at my house. I remember, I'll never forget my dad's look on his face when he opened the door at me because I was 110 pounds. I can't imagine what that feels like to see because he hadn't seen me like that. So that, and I showed up with a bag of Vicodin and a bag of Xanax. I was like, here's my detox plan. Yeah. And he was like, what is wrong with you? So that was, I stayed clean-ish. I say ish because I was- Just off opiates. Uh, yeah, but I was like, you know, my mom, the enabler is still like, here, take some gabapentin here, you know, <laughs> like. <laughs> So it was, I tried, I went to a meeting once during that time and I was just like, again, went silent. There's, you know, that, there's my coping skill. And then I, at that time I started, I started smoking meth. And then I had a little run with meth for about four or five months. Hmm. At your parents' house. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we had some pretty bad altercations at my parents' house as a result. Mm -hmm. And I ended up getting kicked out eventually. Not kicked out, but it was pretty understood that I wasn't. You gotta leave there. now. Yeah, <laughs> and went to my friend's house. Was kicked out of there. Then I was sleeping in my car, and I remember I was at this apartment complex. This is the last day I used. I was at this apartment complex, this real shady complex, you know, sleeping in my car, and all day I'm going to this guy's house, and he's not there, and I'm waiting to use. You know, when you're waiting, 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 it becomes so glorified, that, like, moment. Like, you just can't wait for it when you finally mm -hmm. get to do it. And finally, I, I got him. I got it. I got the stuff. I get in the car. I it's do like it. It's like waiting for a thousand Amazon packages. <laughs> right, right, right. Prime, baby. Uh, I wish Amazon delivered drugs. You know how fast it would be? They do. Oh, man. That's true. They're doing, like, far they're at pharmacy know. now. Are they? Yeah. I think, yeah. You, you know, know what Jeff I Bezos saw is. was crazy? Was, I'm just so weird. I Googled, like, crack stamps on Amazon, oh, yeah. like, the real company. Do you they could, have reviews? Yeah. People leave reviews. And it's so funny. It's crazy. Let's, like, bro, these are crack stamps. <laughs> right. And you could like... buy a box to show up to your house tomorrow. <laughs> and it's, like, they got, like, the, the pen ones. They got the rose ones and a box of 24. Could you imagine? being picky about what you would smoke crack out of could you imagine 2021 you're on crack and you buy your pipes off amazon <laughs> i could you could buy syringes I off could. there too i was like you got me fucked up i was like 
I don't know why I chose to look that up. It always intrigued me that there's a company out there that mass produces crack pipes. Not a single person uses them for anything else. And that right, they're right, just right, like, right, right. like this company just prevails. Over, over what is, what, they're like water pipes. So don't they have to be labeled as something else? Uh, it's a pen. Or ones like a, the rose ones are just like a cute gift for your girlfriend or something. Oh, yeah, like, like yeah. what do you even do with yeah. that? <laughs> That's a little brown bag special. Yeah, it's the brown bag special. And how much money is wasted on those little roses that nobody yeah, uses? Yeah, nobody uses such a silly... I mean, at least the pen, you can use the ink to push it. What's the pen? It's a glass pen. It's just a glass pen, but... That it, you put chore boy in? Well, you could take the pen out. You take the... Just like a regular pen to snort drugs or oh, something. Oh, okay, So okay, it look, okay. it's a glass pen. Okay, okay It looks okay. just like the rose, but okay. the end of it is a pen. And then, okay. But the ink you can use to push the chore, which is like the fascinating That's part. That's the fun part. I was at the gas station one time buying a glass rose and I see this girl and she's an NA and God love her, but she's like super loud and obnoxious. <laughs> and she goes, Oh my God, is that Austin? You look like shit. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to buy my little glass rose and be yeah, on my leave way. Me alone. Leave me be, girl. Let me live. Wow. Okay, so you're 110 pounds. You oh, get so kicked out of your friend's house. I'm seeking, I'm looking for this drug all day, waiting for the dealer. I finally get it, go to my car, I use it, and I just started crying because I was like, this is it? This feeling? Mm. This is the feeling that I've like given everything away for? And in that moment, like my past five years was like all in my face and all the things I experienced at the 10 o'clock. This is after West Broward Club, which seems so wild to me that I could go from experiencing that type of joy and love and fulfillment to this feeling. Yeah, like this is what I was glamorizing in this my is head. It? Yeah. Well, that's when the drugs stopped working. I remember the last time I got high, I had that same experience. Like that was it. Like I didn't even get high. It was just like, I remember I did it and I was just like, mm-mm. Right. You know, like it's a rude awakening when yeah. you're like, this is this feeling is whack. Where you're so broken and like the drugs and you know what? Like even when I would do opiates, I didn't even like doing them because I would get so weird on them and like annoying mm -hmm. and then like just not out right, and like right, no right. one wanted irritable. to be irritable and everyone yeah. hated me. Mm -hmm. And I remember doing them, like I don't even like this feeling. Right, right, right. And maybe if I was nodding, I would like enjoy that. But that was like 20 minutes out of like an eight hour high, right. you know? No, it's whack. I had surgery this time clean and I had to take pain meds. And for like the first dose, I was like, this feels good. And after that, I was so fucking like, really? This is whack. Mm -hmm. I imagine I'd be like laying down, just like watching movies all day. I couldn't stay awake. I couldn't pay attention to what I was watching. Like I couldn't, music was not sounding like enjoyable anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now when I think about like being dope sick, I used to be dope sick more than I was high, which was like three days out the week. Right. And now, right. like, if I think I'm getting a cold, I'm like, oh my God, no. <laughs> like, <laughs> I cannot, like, if you're sick, get the fuck away. I cannot, yeah, 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 I'm yeah. so busy. I can't afford to, like, right. live my life right. and right. be sick at the same right. time. Right. And I used to be sick all the time. Like, right. I just live my life sick. Right. You know, I had right. a runny nose all the time, right. I was shaking all the time. Right. Some weird cough <laughs> from Newport. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah. Or even just the mind fuck of, just knowing you, just the plug answering the phone and suddenly you don't feel as sick anymore. Yeah, yeah, It's like, what's happening in this mind? Yeah. I tell people all the time, like, I don't even need the drugs. Like, when the money hits my hand, you're like, right, you, right, you're right, like, right, right. you crumbled up that $20 bill, you're straight. Yeah, we're good. So how did you get clean the second time? So I reached out, and that moment I reached out and asked somebody for help. And um, they scholarshiped me into treatment, and it, it saved my life. What was getting clean the second time like? 
I remember sitting on the plane going there thinking, Austin, the, you need to change everything. You need to change your attitude. You are going to go here and you're going to be humble and grateful and you're not going to complain one time. You're not going to do your normal shtick where you go in and tell everybody about themselves mm -hmm. and let everybody know how you're smarter than them and you've got it figured out and like, that needs to go. You can't bring that person this time because you've already shown that you can get years clean. Cool. But can you change your behavior? Mm -hmm. You know? So that was the challenge this time was changing my Which behavior. Which is people's problem when they've been to treatment like 15 times because they can run the groups and they want to tell you like right. how this should be working or whatever. But really what treatment is trying to teach you is surrender. Mm. And like, mm. if you can surrender to, you know what, they're not doing it the right way. Right. But right. who's in which chair? Right. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I'm in this chair for a reason, and I'm going to try to act as if uh, I'm trying to learn something, you know? Yeah, there was something about the scholarship, I think, that humbled me in a way that I don't know that yeah. going on my own policy would have done, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. I was so grateful for this gift. Yeah, because when you don't have insurance, you're like, uh, okay. <laughs> right. Well, especially yeah. if you're like, when you're using with like other addicts, like, the people with insurance, they act like they're all better than They're like, oh, I could go to treatment right now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're like, wait, where did Bill go? He's in treatment. Yeah. I have uh, my little suboxone strips yeah, cut yeah. up. I'm in my PT cruiser. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're detoxing by yourself with your little strips <laughs> and your ruler. Yeah, oh, because, you, I mean, you don't know what you got until it's gone. And um, and not everyone has that uh, attitude when they're scholarship. Right. You know, I've had some of the worst experiences with people that, you know, complaining. And I was like. How can you complain, you know? Right, right. And at the same time, you know, it's like you can't be a cherry picker with one cherry, you know? It's yeah. like you don't got nowhere else to go, so, like, you might as well like it. And that goes for life because right. there was a time where I didn't want to be alive. There was a time where I didn't want – I didn't like my life. But it's like, bro, that's the only one you got. Right, right. You right, don't got right. another one to wear. You mm -hmm. don't like this. Is, you yeah, better start liking this one. Right. It's not a dress rehearsal. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, uh, this is not your practice life. Right. It's not it's a warm up. Yeah. You know, this is it. Yeah. You know, you get one shot at this and that's it. You know, if you choose to fuck it all up, you know. Thank God we, because I always say, I've been clean for the past 12 years and I used for one of them. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And thank God things were... As so you have six years now? Are you coming I'll up? I'll have seven tomorrow, actually. Damn! Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Congrats! Seven years back. That's I always fire. try to include back because I think uh, it was important when I came back to hear stories of people that had time. That came back. Yeah. Of course. It's not like when um, someone like falls off like a celebrity, you're like, oh, they were full of shit or something. Right, you know, right, it's right. like, look, you know, you used and... Um, it's a miracle to make it back because right. if getting clean is hard, getting clean twice is right. a motherfucker. Well, and I did, especially when I used, I thought so little of myself when I relapsed. I didn't understand. It's only been told to me later what a big deal it was for other people that stayed clean mm -hmm. when I used, like what that was like. I just thought nobody will care if I'm not here, you know? Mm -hmm. People were like, no, like we did care. It was a big deal. Like, yeah. thank God to be back. I remember you used to share this story about, you know, you doing hair and your dad walking in and seeing it. What about Do, it? do you remember the story? No. I remember you used to share this story where you were like doing hair on your mom or your sister or something. Uh -huh. and your dad walked in and was like, you're pretty good at that <laughs> or something like that. Do you My remember? dad never said that. <laughs> really? No. No, I couldn't even do hair in front of him. Even as you got older, like when you got clean? 
Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. This time. Yeah, yeah. 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 He has been very complimentary of that now. That's cool. And I think he's just like so floored that I can make a good living doing hair. I don't think he understood that. I think he thought I was going to be like on his dime like the rest of my life, clean or not. So he can't believe that like you're making money doing hair. <laughs> I think he's just so floored. He's like, what the fuck? Yeah, this yeah. wig? You doing wigs upstairs? <laughs> Actually, it's a real career. Right. right. If I ever mention maybe wanting to like change jobs, he's like, oh, you, you got a good thing going <laughs> yeah he probably bust his ass whatever he's doing what does he do for work he um he works in oil and gas yeah yeah he works in oil and gas so yeah and we have such a great relationship now we talk multiple times a week mm -hmm. for extended amounts of time about everything you know you know my sister does hair so i'm extremely loyal to her and lemon honey hair salon shout out but oh, yeah if she didn't do hair you know it's cool to see that, like, everyone in, not everyone, a lot of people in recovery go to you to get their hair done. This is true. And it's really cool. <laughs> it's really cool to see, like, all the girls go to you to get your hair done. Because it's like, you know. I'm helping them stay clean. Yeah. They got to like what they see when they mm -hmm. look in the mirror. Absolutely. And I remember, like, you know, people getting their hair done from you and tagging you or whatever. And it was like, yeah, like, I got clean with that kid. You know, and there's people that are just now getting clean that still go to you to get their hair. Well, that was a thing, too, of so much gratitude for the support of people in NA when it came to my career, especially mm -hmm. in the beginning. It's not normal to know as many people as we do. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I like think like friends that I went to high school with have like two friends. <laughs> no, seriously. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I got to go to this person's right. birthday. I got to go to right. that person. And like sometimes I act like it's a drag. And the reality is, is that it's really strange how many people we know in such a small like, it is. thing. It is. Intimately, too. Yeah. It's like this guy knows everything about me. Yeah. And we probably only talked like four times. Right, but right, when right. you're in the recovery community... It's like this little weird family. It is. And that's why I always I always um, get excited when people want to go into any career that is performance based and mm -hmm. utilize the amount of people that we know. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I was telling someone the other day and I was like, bro, the person who cuts my lawns in recovery, the dude who painted my Same. houses in recovery, yeah, yeah, yeah. the dude who cuts my hairs in recovery, right, right. everything True. like and it's not like I'm, you know, like uh <laughs> racist on other people or something you know what i mean <laughs> but it's just like i know that dude you right, know what i mean it's right, like bro i've known right. this guy for years and um i would like him to get the work it would be like just like how my sister does hair right i support her business right you know so it's like when you have friends that do certain things and i kind of trust them right like i kind of trust this dude has been doing you know plumbing for years right. i'm gonna call him and he's gonna come over and and it's not like some random person, you know? No, there's definitely a comfort level. Even the girl who I hired to do my install my new floors, I didn't even know she was in recovery. Yeah. But then I was doing different bids, and when I found out she was, I was like, oh, hell yeah. Yeah. I'm going with you. Yeah. There's just a comfort level. I feel like... 100%. You know. Especially when people are, like, new, you want to, like, support them in, like, their new life. Because you know what it's like when you have a year clean? Like, I was at a restaurant, and some girl was just like, I know who you are, and we talked... And she had two years clean and she's like, yeah, I heard you speak or whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, it felt cool to be like, like, I've never seen this girl in my life, right, you know, right, 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 to like right. leave her a big tip right. and be like, cool. Yeah. Like, I see you, you know, yeah. because when you're an addict, you kind of ashamed to talk about that. And like when you get a job, you're kind of scared that they're going to ask right. you about this eight year right. gap on your resume or like, right. you know, your felony convictions or something. And yeah. the recovery community really supports each other where, um, 
if you own a business, you're like, oh shit, you used to shoot heroin. Come on over. It's true. We are essentially we are like a self sustaining little little economy. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, you need a job? <laughs> right. Go over here to John Henry. He'll give you a job. Right. You need a place to live? Yeah. Oh, we got a place for you to live. You need an accountant? We got an accountant. Mm-hmm. Get, got your got done, get your hair done. Get your nails done. Oh, you're traveling? Oh, you got to go hit up <laughs> Becky over there in LA. She, she'll take care of you. Like, really, like when I travel, right. people hit me up and like, oh, go stay at this person's house. Like, I don't like have the ability to get a hotel. But like, Oh, they... yeah. People do that. I admire people that do that. I would never. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I have a couple times. Have you? Yeah, people have been like, people have been like, "Hey, man, my buddy's flying into Fort Lauderdale. I'm like, they could stay at my place. That's really nice. <laughs> only it's if it's scary. only only if it's like my sponsor, because I know okay, I know okay, my okay. not if it's if it's recommended for my sponsor. Right, right, right. Like if right. my sponsor's like, "Hey, someone's coming down there from Florida. They need support or whatever." I'm like, I that's mean, nice. It's nice to show up in that way. Yeah, it's cool. And, I don't want to do that. I'm just like, <laughs> send me the GoFundMe. Yes, yeah, send me the GoFundMe. <laughs> I'll donate. Yeah. What's your TikTok? My TikTok is Austin underscore Senior. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Austin underscore Senior. Austin underscore Senior. And your Instagram? Instagram is Hair by Austin Senior. Hair by Austin Senior. Hair by Austin Senior. Amazing hair stuff. Thank you. Thank you. How has your past, you know, if you could sum up the past 6.999 years? Mm hmm. How has it been? Mm-hmm. It has been so fast, it seems. I learned early on how to channel all that obsessive, compulsive energy into productive things. And it's taken me farther than I ever could have imagined, whether it's in my career or my personal life, my personal relationships. I just bought a house this past year, which was the most stressful thing I've ever done. But mm-hmm. like, I was living in a PT Cruiser, Yeah, <laughs> you know? And at this point in my life, I, I still believe that that obsessive compulsive nature is never going to go away with me. Mm-hmm. That's my belief. Maybe if other people disagree. I find that it's never going to go away. And it's important that I at least find productive things to channel it into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like with the internet, it's kind of like, oh, I want to buy a house. Oh, that seems hard. We'll just Google it. You know what I mean? <laughs> go on YouTube. It's like, oh man, I wish I could do hair. We'll just Google it. It's like anything you right. want to do in life, you right. can literally just go to the internet and like teach yourself. Like someone the other day was like, hmm, should I lease a car or buy one? And I'm like, it's a little more complicated than that. She's like, well, I just don't know. And I was like, well, <laughs> it depends. Like, you know, are, do you drive a lot? Whatever. I was right, like, right, right. I was like, what you should do is get on the internet and read like three or four articles. Right. Or at least watch a couple of videos about the pros and cons of leasing right. versus buying. And she was like, well, oh, I just wanted you to tell me. And I was just <laughs> like, what was that getting you at? Like, right, right, like, right, like right, where right, else right. in your life do right. you do this, right. you know? Right. And the reality is, is that you shouldn't be dependent on me. Like, you got to kind of figure it out. And there are things in life that I didn't understand. And I thought I was stupid. Like what? Taxes and accounting. Right. Like, I remember... Uh, like, I'm just not going to understand it now a lot better. And I remember like, just not really get, I would talk to my accountant and be confused all the time. Yeah. I still am unclear. I'm just like, tell me what I owe. And just... <laughs> yeah. And then I was like, how do I owe that? I thought I paid you, you know, like, it's... Right. and then I'm just like, but can't you write this off? And like, honestly, like, I remember I listened to this book about like finance and like 90% of the book, I was like totally lost. I listened to it again. I like listened to it again. I listened to it like four times. And on the fourth time, I was like, oh, you see, like, I get it now. You know, like, <laughs> I can do your taxes. it took a couple times for me to like really understand right, what it right. was. And it's just kind of like 
this thought process of like, you know what, if I can't figure it out in the first try, I'm not going to just chalk it up to, well, I'm stupid. I can't right. figure like, it out. That's funny you say that because that was something that this last time clean, you know, I've been, I had tried to play the guitar before and gave up. This time I was like, you know what, I'm really going to stick with this. And I, I'm still not very good, mm. but I can play a song. That's cool. Yeah. But it's that type of stick with itness that... Uh, I didn't have before. And you're creative. I'm creative. You have. I listen to your songs on Spotify. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Just trying to, you know, live my life. I see. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show, Austin. Thank you for having me. I appreciate, uh, you know, you being back, and um, you know, your story is awesome. And I think a lot of people don't see this side of you because they just see like the funny Austin. Right. Right. You know. Well. I just want to say, you know, when you talked about when you used to come to meetings, you would be crying and you would call it your diary. And, <laughs> you know, at, at that point in my life, it was very healing for me to see a man in that way. You've always been so kind to me. You've never treated me with anything but respect. And like that was really important to me. I appreciate that, you know, and I think um, there's like this type of thing where it's like I didn't like if you were young and also struggling with the same thing It's like I didn't see too many of that going on right so to know that there was other young people getting clean and Like I had respect for you because I'm like yeah, bro that dude smoked crack You know, oh, yeah. like, like there wasn't that many young people like us that were like hardcore using at mm -hmm. the time yeah, and that's um, true. You made like even back then like you do you remember? <laughs> you remember the Halloween parties the NA Halloween parties? <laughs> Wait, yeah, I do. Which one in particular? Oh, all of them. For like years. Well, me and Leah were quite on yeah, the scene. Yeah, you guys were Do you remember when you made out when she gave me a medallion? You guys? Do you remember that at the yeah, West Power Club? Yeah. She gave me a medallion and we'd like made out. You started kissing? Yeah. Yeah, she gave the speech that she was like in love with me. <laughs> it was. It, we set it all up. Do you remember when you guys used to make up rumors about people? <laughs> we did. No, we would make them about ourselves. Yeah. We would make rumors up about ourselves, really horrible rumors, and just see if they got back to us. <laughs> Did they? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I remember being like this time clean and hearing something and somebody being like, yeah, you did that, right? And I'm like, no, that's, that's not true at all. And it was something really vile. We would just make up the most vile like things. Like slept with some alien. Yeah, we, we like gave head to some guy and he was going to give us money. And <laughs> he didn't give us the money, He did, but he offered to buy us a steak dinner. Wow. <laughs> I mean, the things we did to stay entertained. <laughs> You got to yeah. do that when you're not working steps, you know? Amen. Yeah, you got to get it out in the beginning. You got to be as unspiritual as you can. Listen, thank God that our disease was as progressive as it was at such a young age. I'm yeah, so grateful for because that. Because I'm sure you and I both know people that are just now, like, wondering how to get clean. I'm so glad that I'm not a user that can somehow keep it together. Mm -hmm. Because I think that is so insidious. And I watch these people uh, in my life, coworkers, different. And I watch them just be able to kind of manage. And I'm like, and I, they're not really living. Mm -hmm. But if I was able to do that, I would still be doing that right now. Yeah, and I feel the same way. As soon as I started using it, it became horrific. Right. You know, it yeah. became like, I can't stand this anymore. And for people that use lightly or are able to manage or use every other weekend or they can stop for a couple months at a time it's harder to treat them right because um you know it's like this moving target yeah, yeah yeah so it's harder to treat somebody that isn't blaring out with symptoms mm -hmm. but the disease is actually stronger in them as opposed to somebody who's like i know i got a problem and right. they're able to sit still right. and you can treat them right but when someone's constantly on the move and not thinking that they need help they don't see how detrimental the addiction is in their life because yeah. it's so subtle. Yeah, it's a moving target. I like that. 
Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Bye. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com.